You're Missing Out is sponsored by Audible. As part of my New Year's resolution, I told myself I'd read more and listen to new audiobooks. With Audible, it's easier than ever to find titles and time in my routine to reach my goal. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, as well as access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Right now, you can visit audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast and get two audiobooks on behalf of the show. You can download thousands of different titles and listen offline, anytime, anywhere. Download the free Audible app on your favorite smartphone and tablet devices without ever losing your spot. Having a hard time deciding what to listen to? No worries. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. This is the best way to find a new title to fall in love with, all while supporting your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast to start your free trial and get two free audiobooks on us. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, if you could take the place of one celebrity, like a current celebrity in this moment in time in their career, everything they have done up to this point still exists, but you take over their body or their life, their career in this moment, who would it be? So my answer, uh, probably not going to come as uh, much of a surprise to people that uh, know me and my, my weird little rabbit holes I go down, but... Um, I mean, quite frankly, if there's a life you want to live, uh, there's only one answer, um, which is I would love to, to take over for the, uh, musician, movie star, restaurateur, and entrepreneur, uh, that is one Mr. James Buffett. I mean, think about it. Here is a guy now, he's in his what? 60s, 70s. Uh, he's had a string of albums. Uh, he continues to put out albums but when he does his live shows it's mostly just playing the the songs everybody wants to hear you know pirate looks at 40 margaritaville cheeseburger in paradise owns a bunch of restaurants gets to travel the world as much as you want has an established brand and people that show up for him all the time uh, so i think it's got to be uh, I, if i was going to take any role uh, i would love to be the um the hawaiian shirt rockin mc uh the griller of the finest cheeseburgers in paradise jimmy buffett well this one's pretty easy for me if we're talking about right now, right this moment. I'm taking Ben Affleck's life, baby. I'm I'm going on that boat. <laughs> I'm going on that boat. You're getting that Phoenix tattoo, dude? Hell yeah. I'll take the Phoenix tattoo if I could go on that boat and touch J-Lo's butt and then look off into the sun regretfully. Just look off into the sun remembering every regret I've made in my life, but then also thinking... Yeah, I'm touching that oh. butt. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite part of that answer, Tom, that you didn't maybe think through, is we. There's like months that go by between when we record this and when this episode's released. And if you know anything about Ben Affleck's life and career, things can change drastically in months. So by the time this comes out, by the time this comes out, Tom will go. I, I trade places with Ben Affleck, and somebody will go. The guy who just robbed a bank? Like we don't know. If Hell yeah, he just robbed a bank. That's. <laughs> That's a lot more exciting than my normal day-to-day. -day. <laughs> Mike, please don't give Tom any more ideas to reenact the town. Thank you very much. Oh, God. <laughs> Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we're kicking off Season 2 with a familiar voice and fan favorite, 
Phil Isco from Podcast Like It's 1999 returns to the show to discuss 1950s All About Eve. Our guest today, and I'm uh, very happy to say this, is back by popular demand. He is uh, one of the hosts of my favorite podcast, Podcast Like It's 1999. Phil Isco is joining us today to talk about All About Eve. Phil, thank you so much for coming back. Thanks for uh, for having me back. Welcome back, buddy. <laughs> and I mean by popular demand because when we did our end of season one survey and we asked folks like, which guests would you like to hear back? Your name was said the most. So you are the, you know, most requested. Well, I appreciate guest. that. That's very, that's very nice to hear. And uh, even even more so, uh, I'm thrilled that you're, I guess, becoming our our 1950 correspondent because uh, <laughs> apparently last season you came on for Sunset Boulevard and now mm-hmm. All About Eve, which competed against each other for the Oscars. So I guess I don't know if if Father of the Bride gets uh, into the registry, you got to come back for that. I don't know. Is there any movie in season three about uh, uh, Hollywood <laughs> and old women? <laughs> I j- All right. <laughs> I, I mean, I do think that these films are kind of synonymous. I mean, certainly they're released in the same year, but and they they traffic in similar themes. But I I do think that they're they're very different. But I understand. Yeah, I mean, this film. one is kind of I guess kind hearted version of this story. Like yeah, it, it like not, it's yeah. like there's there's some darkness to it. Don't get me wrong, but like this one is is a lot kinder to the mm-hmm. central actress, the over-the-hill, quote-unquote, you know, however you want to say it, actress Betty Davis, where in Sunset Boulevard, it's just like, oh, she's a monster, and she has an ape in her house. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I was thinking about this last night, about how, and I was obviously doing some reading up on, on All About Eve, just so I didn't sound like a complete idiot, because as I mentioned for our Sunset Boulevard episode, I, I, I am not a, a classic movie uh, aficionado by any means. I went to film school and I'm watching AFI movies and, and I do like classic movies, obviously, but I can't I can't roll that deep. Um, but that being said, I do think that this film, it's not surprising that this is the one that wins all the Oscars, I guess, is similar to what you're saying, Tom. Like, I think The Sense of Boulevard is, is far more, quite frankly, darker, bizarre. I, I would argue Cynical. funnier sicker um and and this movie is i guess it's a lot more subtle about how about what it's saying but if you do look under the hood this movie is pretty fucked up oh i mean the like we'll get to it but the the turn in the third act is uh yeah pretty horrifying yeah so let's talk about before we get into uh, our thoughts more on the film let's talk about why the national film registry picked all Mm -hmm. about eve this is what the national film registry had to say Scheming ingenue Eve Harrington, and Baxter, ingratiates herself with aging Broadway star Margot Channing, Betty Davis, moving in on her acting roles, her friends, and her stage director, Beau. The dialogue is often too bitingly perfect with sarcastic barbs and clever comebacks, but it's still entertaining and quote-worthy. The film took home Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Director, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, Best Screenplay, Mankiewicz, and Costume Design, Edith Head and Charles Lemaire. George Sanders won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his performance as the acid-tongued theater critic Addison DeWitt, Thelma Ritter as Margot's maid, Celeste Holm as Margot's best friend, and Marilyn Monroe in a small role as an aspiring actress give memorable performances. So that is what the National Film Registry had to say about All About Eve. Weird that they kind of take a dig in it in there, but hey, whatever. The, the, the film registry is so... I don't know, like uptight about like there's nothing fun about these descriptions. It's it's so it's just it's very strange sometimes how they choose to yeah define yeah. them. And I think it gets 
better as as the registry evolves because like if you look at their synopses for the films from like 2020 yeah you know they kind of get into like let's tell you why sweet sweet back's badass song is significant but it feels like early on they were just kind of going i mean come on you know what it is we know <laughs> no that's fair that's, that's actually you know not to get too overview of it but like kind of the fun of this season as opposed to mm-hmm. la- last season every film we covered was pretty much the canon right yeah every film was like, oh of course this season we start to get into some stuff that is not quite as established and in a way i do kind of feel like obviously all about eve one best picture mm-hmm. and it's a uh, you know and for people who love movies obviously you know it's part of the canon i do feel like it's one of those ones that isn't quite as seared into pop culture conversation yeah i yeah. mean I, I i have to be completely honest i had not seen this film until probably about five years ago something along those lines and and for for kind of for the reasons that you that you just outlined mike like i i knew it won all these oscars i knew what it was about i felt like i had kind of seen it a little bit by osmosis and in terms of you know pop culture and the zeitgeist and what have you and and i was really wrong i i went to see it actually at a a a screening of it at, at grauman's and it's just it's it's a stellar film it's obviously got its issues and we'll we'll, we'll talk about that but it's understandable why it it you know, why people were so enamored with it. I think an interesting thing about this film and why it maybe hasn't been around as much, uh, and I can test, uh, if you, if our listeners have checked social media, we put up a little uh, preview of our new theme song and I cut a trailer to it, you know, Mm -hmm. just add visual elements on it. And it wasn't until I was doing that that it really struck me of, there's no trailer moment in All About Eve. There's no scene you can isolate. There's lines of dialogue. Um, yeah, you know, especially fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy night. That's a line yeah, that gets that's a lot. the line. Yeah. yeah, but visually, like there is yeah. fucking nothing. And so I was telling Tom, like I have no, I I don't know what footage to use, and I do wonder if the fact that it can't hasn't been imitated really in cart in, in the Looney Tunes we grew up with, or there's nothing to sure. really kind of replicate that in a way, like you know, certain that's films that we know and are part of the canon we know and are part of the canon because they were copied so many times and we know it so well now it's so part of our cultural mm-hmm. lexicon it's like it's like i mean cuz you it's always going to be tied together with uh sunset boulevard it's the thing that's not going to help all about eve with you know yeah. lasting and being stuck in the uh people's minds is that it's it it is so like low key and down to earth whereas sunset boulevard is this big yeah broad thing and that that central performance is so big and broad and you know i'm ready for my close-up mr demille is just such a like big iconic like punchline yeah. to your movie and uh you know and again you know billy wilder gotta say he is a better writer and a director yeah. than mankowitz this has i mean a much more novelistic screenplay and a much more stage-bound visual direction directing style that it ends up like you're watching like yeah this is really good but you never like on the filmmaking level you're getting blown away by it and the dialogue is always kind of like kind of a mouthful it's never like easy to chew on for sure. It's it's interesting because, you know, as you guys were talking, I was thinking about, you know, this this movie is very much sort of like Broadway versus Hollywood, theater versus film, highbrow versus lowbrow. Like, it's it's all that stuff. And that staged kind of 
component makes it feel like a play in a lot of ways, which isn't a oh, bad yeah. thing. I don't know if yeah. that's intentional or not, but it does speak to what you're saying, Tom, which is that it's, it, it feels very terrestrial. Um, it feels very grounded, um, but it's also theatrical in its own way. It's a very florid dialogue. The characters are larger than life in a lot of ways, but yeah, it, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't have the, the punch visually or, or, or otherwise that has the lasting power in the same way that something like Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, I think it's one of those cases of because there's no singular visual element that sticks in your mind, it's one of those films, and we dealt with this last season too with certain movies, um, mm-hmm. you know, that are a little more uh, grounded. I think Grapes of Wrath is one too. Sure. Uh, and where it's a movie that you forget just how good it is. You know what I mean? Like it's yes. a movie that... Yes. Like, for me, I just remember, like, I watched All About Eve for the first time when I was young. Like, I was mm-hmm. a kid. And I didn't like it. Um, in part yeah, because sure it was I was... boring. <laughs> as a kid. Well, I mean, it's... I remember some of the dialogue was good, but, like, as a little kid... I, and, I mean, a part of it is, when you're a kid, you don't have a sense of timeline. So I was just sitting there going, yeah, the one replaces the other. I get it. I've seen this. Like, I get it. Right, 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 right. I and so that. I kind of always wrote it off in my mind. And then revisiting it, not just as an adult, but then revisiting it for this podcast. Like, each time, I had that feeling of, Right. I forgot just how you forget how good it is because all you're remembering from it is some bits of dialogue and the plot. And that all feels very basic, but it does have an electricity when it's happening, even if it doesn't it, necessarily. It, yeah, totally. You're just, cause you're just remembering Betty Davis, essentially. And you're remembering, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Ann Baxter, but you're not like remembering specific moments you're not remembering a visual like you're not remembering yes. you know a guy floating in the pool you know you're not remembering the the shadows of that haunted mansion that she lives in in sunset boulevard you're just remembering the, the overall cat. feeling of like yeah. the monk the monkey listen i'm always down for mon- this movie could have used the monkey i agree i mean take I out agree. take out marilyn monroe and have george george saunders <laughs> trying to like creep on yeah. a monkey i would have been all for it yeah. because that monkey wouldn't have been taking that shit monkey would not have been taking <laughs> yeah, that absolutely shit. absolutely um, it's also because, like, there's no big dramatic, like, melodramatic moment where, like, well, I don't know, like, Betty Davis, like, like slaps her or something, or there's just, like, it, it's it's all these, it, what I like about the movie is that it kind of, like, subverts your expectations of where it's gonna go, and you think there's gonna be, like, a big blowout, but then, like, that big, that brilliant thing at the end with the third act where George Saunders is just like, well, no, actually, this is what's now. gonna happen. Yeah. yeah. I'll say this, and I agree with everything you're saying, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback on it and just say that, you know, recently I rewatched uh, All About Eve for, for this AFI club uh, with friends, and the last shot of the film, uh, you know, obviously we're going to be jumping around in time, but the last shot uh, in the film is a young actress essentially posing as Eve in her bedroom mm-hmm. with these three mirrors holding this award, and it, it really did it hit me on a bunch of levels in the sense that it made me think about um, Black Swan. It made me think about The Favorite. It made me think about a lot of movies that, um, you know, the, the commentary essentially on, on femininity and women and, and deconstruction of all that, both of those films obviously doing that as well as this film. But that last shot is really haunting. Um, yeah. And it is very creepy and it does stay with you. Um, but to your point tom i'm not sure that it has it this it's not it's just not the same as 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 sunset boulevard which understands how to well, weaponize a yeah. well 
Well, just because that moment is so kind of like it, it, it's it, it's this element introduced five minutes before the movie ends. So you yeah. don't really have like this. It's a great punchline. It's yes. a great like wrapping up point of, yeah. you know, this is going to happen to her now. Um, but yeah, it doesn't ha- like Sunset Boulevard, you know, so concise and it's about these two people. So ev- there's no there's nothing really introduced later. And um, yeah, again, to piggyback over something you just said, the, uh, bringing up, you know, like movies like Black Swan and The Favorite. This this is a thing we've we've dealt with a lot in the first season, and we're gonna keep dealing with the the a movie that feels like a Rosetta Stone for a whole bunch of other movies. Totally, totally. Where, not to the movie's fault, and I don't even think the movie really flounders in this regard. But there's a lot of movies where because you've seen everything they've influenced, you try to go back and watch them and go, okay, I mean, I get it, but this feels. Yeah kind of bare bones this doesn't have that i'm not trying to say that but there's a there's a little bit of that where you go okay i've seen this a lot but this one is like a good well of well attuned version just because like mankowitz and everyone are so tied into hollywood and story and just that the entire entertainment industry it, it feels honest and just timeless in how it's just chasing what it's chasing i think there's an interesting element too with this film and and you know, not just separating it from Sunset Boulevard, but quite frankly, separating it from a lot of other films that seemingly try and do the all about Eve, you know, one usurps the other thing, which is, and I, I'm brought back to this word, and I think we have to use this uh, this this word uh, because it was used by the stars and the directors and used uh, by author Sam Staggs, who has a great book um, called All About All About Eve that I'm holding right here in my hands about the making of it. And he describes it as the complete behind the scenes story of the bitchiest film ever made. And Betty Davis uh-huh. used that word, and they always that word. And there is something I think really interesting about this movie, which is it has no big moments, and it it intentionally has no big moments. And the story that it's based on, the wisdom of Eve, which mm-hmm. um if anybody has the criterion, uh mm-hmm. they put that I in do, the booklet. Too. Yeah, by uh by Mary Orr, based on the life of an actual actress that she knew who had been usurped, they all use the term bitch in the story they have the line eve was a bitch and i think that it's interesting because what happens in this movie all of the way it unfolds none of it is dramatic to the point of like nobody's punching anybody out nothing's operatic it is just subtle conniving bitchy tactics like it's just little acts of sabotage it's it's not i'm gonna lie you know a more dramatic film and films to try and copy this and particularly, you know, more male-oriented films that try and copy this would have some dramatic scene of I'm gonna, you know, poison uh, Margot, or I'm gonna lock her in a closet, or something like that. But it's just little acts of control, little acts of subterfuge, and it feels so much more honest that way. You know, you you hear a lot of uh, times, you know, uh, women writers talking about movies they went to see where men are writing female characters, and they kind of go. A woman would never do that. You wouldn't do something so big. They wouldn't do all this murder. They wouldn't do all this stuff for revenge. They would have more subtle ways. And I do think that part of what makes this film work so well is it. it is a, you know, like, like Sam Stack says, it is the bitchiest film ever made, which is why the movie carried such a popularity with, with uh, gay audiences after it came out, you know, for its campiness on. It is a very subtle and conniving film in, in a way that, you know, I, I don't think you really get as much anymore yeah i mean i, I don't disagree with with any of that i, I mean i'll just i will say though that I, I do think that um you know 
the movie is a is a commentary on you know uh how women are perceived how they perceive themselves um obviously the 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 unfortunate sort of nature of competition that feels sort of ingrained in women based on media and what have you you know just the, the way the patriarchy has unfortunately manipulated women and continues to do so um but i do think that the that there's this this uh quote that um that I read on on Wikipedia uh from Kathleen Woodward's actually 1999 book um about sort of these theories of uh women and bodies and and contemporary culture and what have you and she talks about how Margot has three options in the movie to continue to work she can perform the role of a young woman one she no longer seems that interested in she can take up the position of the angry bitch the drama queen who holds court or she can accept her culture's gendered discourse of aging, which figures her as a uh, as in her moment of fading, and Margot ultimately chooses the latter option. Um, I, I I do wonder whether or not the 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 quote unquote bitchiness that exists is dialed up. Obviously, a little bit. It's still a movie, and there's obviously a, a theatricality to it. But but I'd almost I'd be lying if I said that I felt like they genuinely hated each other and genuinely wanted each other to succeed or fail. Like, I think that's almost the sadness in this film is that they feel resigned to these roles. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think the one thing that's interesting and that sets this apart from, you know, a sense of whatever is the fact that even though it is written by a man and directed by a man in Joseph L. Mankiewicz, the fact that it does have its origins in this short story yeah. written by a female author, I, I think is, is really important because you're right, I think if it was if it was an entirely male driven endeavor from the beginning, I think you would have felt you know that these two people really hated each other or wanted each other to fail or anything like that. Whereas what this really is, at least on on Margot's part, in the short story she's Margola, but on Margot's part is she's got her place at the top, and she would it's uh, in the short story. It's interesting to note the short story is is very different if the short story is told from the point of view of margot's unnamed friend who picks her up in a car one day she's telling us the story and she says well one time i picked up margot after a show and i asked her about this girl who was waiting outside every day backstage and that's when margot tells the whole story of well she wanted to be my assistant and she became my assistant and then she tried to take a part from me and she got on stage and the interesting thing about it is that in the short story, it's a simple thing of like, she tried to usurp me. She got on stage one night uh, and then, uh, you know, blew up, but went out to Hollywood, lacked sex appeal, had bad screen tests. And now she's back here trying to get a second chance. And I learned better. Uh, and then the narrator says, but uh, I tried to help her out. And then she stole my husband Lloyd. And now I'm on my way to Vegas to get a divorce. And that's how the short story ends. Which is very different. There's no George, uh, you know, there's no um, Sanders. There's none of that. But I think that what is key about that and about that short story in general is that it retains this kind of idea of it's not about necessarily one person or anything like that. It's just about the way that this industry, whether it's Hollywood or the stage, only has a certain number of spots for people. And... Right. As a result, it's not about not wanting to help somebody or anything like that. It's just knowing, like, this person could knock you from your perch. And nobody would have a problem with Eve if it weren't for Eve trying to knock Margot from the perch to take that spot. 
Well, yeah, it's about, you know, the perch and everything, and that, like, Margot knows that there's a perch and that her time is going to come, and she thinks it's her, you know, her time's coming because she, you know, just turned 40, and she knows that, you know, she's playing a 24-year-old on stage, and it's weird, and, you know, at a certain point, she's going to be too old for anybody to even care about her, and, yeah, like, Eve's here, and she she knows, like, I, and, yeah, I don't know, I think just... It, 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 there's a lot of interesting stuff like what you were saying, but just, you know, it's, it's that thing of, I think there would, it would be a little different for Margot if Eve wasn't so calculated in trying to take her spot. If it was more of just like, she took it like through sheer talent and not fucking her over every step of the way. Well, you're, you're kind of tapping into a, a bigger question that, I mean, and I, I we have to talk about sort of the the gay undertones that exist in this film as well. Wait, there's gay um, undertones. <laughs> yeah, um, it and just the way that the two sort of most Machiavellian characters within this piece are are both sort of subtly or not subtly, depending on how you look at it, um, painted as gay is also an issue. Uh, perhaps the biggest issue that this film has in terms of its legacy, I would say, is that you know I. I especially with the the Addison character who is a straight up villain at the end of the film is problematic to say the least but also just feels like it 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 creates a situation where everyone else is kind of okay quote unquote um even though they've done some some things that are of of questionable moral judgment if you will but but to, to sort of i guess i guess what i'm getting at here is that i do feel like with with Margot and Eve in particular, I feel like Margot doesn't really. She's annoyed by Eve, but I don't. I don't know that she necessarily feels all that threatened by her. Even when like Eve is fully scheming in sort of the the third, I mean the second or third act of this film, I just get the impression that Margot's just annoyed by her. But I don't know if you guys saw it different. I think first off, I mean uh, you know to go back to all about all about Eve, Sam Staggs really goes in on the on the queer reading yeah. of the film. And there are yeah. people who go in on it, and I would argue, uh, I would argue maybe go a little too in on it. Sure. Um, in terms of like, and it's it's a simple thing. Of I remember, you know, when you go to college, you learn about the, the different schools of criticism, and once people start talking about, oh, you know, the queer reading and the Marxist really and all that, you're like, eventually, you're if you just adhere to one type of, I'm gonna find the blank subtext and everything. Sometimes right. you just find out where it's in there. There's obviously queer subtext in this film. I mm -hmm. think that I, I, I mean, I mean. I just think perhaps it's not as there are people who allege like, well, it's because Joseph Mankiewicz was trying to make a movie about the 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 value of heteronormativity. And I'm like, I mean, maybe. But on the other hand, sure. Yes. The the Addison DeWitt character is very obviously, uh, you know, coded as gay. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On the other hand, he's also a theater critic in New York in the 1950s, which is one of the lines of work available to you at that time, like the theater scene was a scene where, you know, I, they, I just, right. I kind of feel like, I don't know if it's as nefarious all the way as people. Think. Yeah. But also we find out the guy's whole scheme is to trap women to fuck them because he's got power. Not literally fuck them just to be clear. Well, no, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, 
that's I that's the way I took it. He's got some pretty fucking Weinstein uh, vibes coming off him. That's oh, interesting. That's interesting. I mean, that's pretty much what he's saying. Like, I mean, and to piggyback on that, Tom, just because I want to make a point about Eve, if I may, mm-hmm. I think that I agree with Tom insofar as with Eve, I've seen people talk about Eve as a lesbian, right? And I think that misses something because I think that you know, obviously, Eve expresses interest in the husbands of both other women. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if perhaps, you know, yes, obviously there's some tension between her and Eve as well, but I don't know if that necessarily means, I think it's it's a bit broad to maybe, or a bit of a stretch to maybe read it as, she's a lesbian and she's just using her power of men. Rather, that what I think the movie's trying to convey is, Eve is one of those people who've used sex, no matter what, as a tool to get where she needs to get. And she's willing to do whatever it takes to get where she needs to get. And this industry and this world, you have to be willing to screw over who you got to screw over and screw who you got to screw to get to that. Oh, I, I think, I think you're reading it probably in the, in the most uh, astute way in the sense that Eve is, is a, a political animal um, and she's going to do what she needs to do in order to, to, to get where she wants to get. And I, to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't, I, I kind of read her as, as a little asexual, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, is perhaps, you know, what they were going for, which is that she'll kind of go whatever way she needs to. But but I also felt like the relationship of 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 talent and assistant or something along those lines, when it is two women or two men or whatever, it is a very, you know, codependent relationship. It it does blur lines in terms of the personal and the professional. And I think that there's a way of reading that or misreading that, depending on how you look at it, um, as you know, her having, you know, queer tendencies. Uh, Tom, what are your thoughts on Eve? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off before. So please, what are, what are your thoughts on Eve within that viewpoint context? I mean, the Eve stuff, I could see more uh, in terms of like uh, queer readings of this. Um, mainly, yeah, like I, either she's asexual or pretty much like, I think, you know, she's like sociopathic and just doesn't really sure, sure. like, like really mind doing whatever she needs to do because, you know, whatever, you yeah. know, people are, other people aren't really people to her. Um, but I, I, I feel more like, I, I think Phil was kind of leaning into it, like the talent and, um, you know, uh, assistant thing. I think more of the queer reading can kind of be seen in her relationship with Margot and it's not like really heavy handed with it. I just think um, because of the age difference and how, I don't know, just the way they interact and just like you say, Margot doesn't even really seem that pissed off. She's just kind of more annoyed yeah. because like she does still kind of like like her, you know, she likes the moxie, but it's like, God damn it. You're so annoying. You're fucking like ruining my day uh i i think she likes the dynamic like i think margo's you know forgive the term but getting off on the dynamic but oh she's a, yeah because she's a drama queen yeah. i mean that's her whole thing sure, i mean sure. like uh her her boyfriend is basically like has to shake her and throw her on yeah. the bed and be like hey fucking like calm down already like you're being <laughs> a little too goddamn much right now i don't like eve i like you uh, like please enough it, it you know it's it's funny too like He's the only character in the movie, I think, other than, um, what's, uh, Margot's, uh, vaudeville assistant, the older woman. Oh, Carla from Cheers? Yes. Yeah, Carla Uh, from, (laughs) Carla from Cheers. Yeah, I literally thought that before watching it, but, like, the boyfriend. What's her name? 
I got a little uh, I've, I've got it written no, down. No, birdie. birdie, yes. Birdie. Yeah, is it birdie? Yeah. Yes. Birdie and uh, what's his name? Um, Lloyd? Bill. That Bill. Birdie and there. Bill are the only two people in the movie that are kind of just like, just honest and just like they're not like falling for the bullshit. Where like right from the bat, Birdie's just like, yeah, no, I don't like her. Yeah, I can tell she's kind of a shit. <laughs> and uh, Bill is is like literally just like he kind of finds her fun, but like when Margot's freaking out, like, oh, you like her, don't you? He's just like, no, what the fuck are you talking about? I just I talk to everybody. I'm a director. I, I'm a, I'm a fucking blowhard. That's what I do. Yeah, it's I I, I really do think that on some level, the only character that isn't honest with themselves is e yeah like everyone else is pretty like you know this is who i am um and and i guess that makes eve the most sort of i mean i don't know if it's uh you know machiavellian or or mustache twirling but she just seems to be the the one that's lying to herself the most i mean because she's the one who gets you know with her she's so full of herself and thinks higher of herself you know, like, yeah. uh, we were talking, recording the other day about, like, Cohen characters or Elmore Leonard characters. She's the kind of character yeah, yeah. who would be in one of those stories who thinks she's such a genius, but then mm-hmm. she's bested yeah. by someone who's actually a genius because real geniuses don't walk around running around saying, no, I'm a genius. It's like, no. So- George Saunders is is going to destroy you because he's on the edges watching everything and be like, yeah, remember that time you said you went to San Francisco and you went to went to this theater? Yeah, that that theater doesn't exist. What are you talking about? You're a moron. Like anybody <laughs> with half a brain could look that up and realize she's full of shit. And he did. I yep. think the the thing with Eve and particularly, you know, uh with with George Saunders, you know, with Addison DeWitt kind of taking control her is that it's not even a case of uh that she was eventually going to be found out. It's that she got found out just a little too early. Yeah. Because she's about to try and make it in Hollywood. And in Hollywood, especially, you know, that time and earlier, like, it was very, very common for studios to make up just absolute lie biographies for their starlets, send mm-hmm. them out, and then have people enforce them and have Eddie Mannix shake down any uh, tabloid person who'd catch them. It's just uh, the thing about Eve that, that kind of screws her a little bit, and it, this is retained not in, in substance but in spirit from the short story, is it's not that she's an absolute mastermind. It, she got a little too big for her britches. She got a little too much too fast, got a little too overconfident. Yeah. And well, and it kind of blew up in her face. Because so, totally. so much of this movie is, all of her schemings are happening off screen. But it's then once we start seeing her scheme is when she starts f- fucking up, essentially. Yeah. And um, yeah, I will also say there is someone else in this movie who is uh, not, uh, very sure of themselves and is kind of easily uh, led by his nose. And that's Lloyd, the writer, the guy who's just like <laughs> such a fucking idiot who's going to leave Karen to be with Eve because he's so clearly the kind of guy who would go to Hooters and think all the waitresses loved him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the pretty, the, pretty gr- the pretty girl was nice to me. Oh, she loved me. It's like, no, you fucking moron. You're writing her golden ticket. That's why she likes yeah. you. Totally. Jumping off that uh, Eve being too big for her britches thing, there is something I actually kind of latched onto watching it before we started recording. It's kind of like twofold, but one, 
it's really going for a thing about true artistry and just going for fame where you get the feeling that everyone except yeah. for Eve, they're actual artists and for all their blowhard tendencies and their over dramatic ways, they are actual artists trying to just make art where Eve is just straight up just wants fame and power and money, which also then dives into another thing I noticed. Everyone else in the movie besides Eve is very well read and intellectual. Like they, they, they're very verbose. They're talking about all sorts of playwrights from like 300 years ago and opera and all sorts of stuff where Eve really isn't doing any of that stuff. She, she's like yeah. j- jumping into the deep end. Like it, it's a thing where like, like a good con artist where she sounds like she knows what she's talking about. But when you actually listen, she's not saying anything of substance. And you realize she's not referencing art in in a way that someone who loves art would talk about art. She's she's a phony, and it's you know I don't know, I I found that interesting. But I also think that I think that's totally interesting. But I, I mean I I don't need to tell you guys that phonies get pretty far in this town. You don't um, say. So you know it, it's it's it almost doesn't matter if you're faking it like i know there's the whole like fake it till you make it and and i do think that that this movie is definitely making a commentary on what you're talking about of people that come out here and decide that they're just they've created a persona for themselves and people just go along with it because if it sells they don't care if it works it works right and and i think it's interesting that this movie is willing to go there i mean to compare it to something like sunset boulevard which is about that's about like real talent Right. Like that's about the idea of um, of having talent and aging out um, or having talent and no one recognizing it in the form of. Uh, um, oh, my God. William Holden. Blank on the William Holden's character. This movie isn't even really about that. It's not even really about talent in a weird way. It's it's about um, success, which is a different thing. Well, it's, it's also goes into that theater versus film thing because yes. it's like if yes. you're an actual talented artistic person you're working in theater you're working yeah. in theater <laughs> yeah. and if you're a fucking idiot hack you're gonna go you can yep. you could go to hollywood because well at least it's fake they can manufacture a good performance out of you or just be like hey she's hot isn't she clearly you know rock hudson's new girlfriend you know that coos hound rock hudson yeah <laughs> but at that same to that same degree <laughs> the other thing that's interesting with that and the theater versus film aspect, I think is uh, the award that she's receiving at the beginning, at the end, right? Mm -hmm. At the beginning, the Mm -hmm. end, Uh, the Sarah, let me see if I could pull in. I have it. The Sarah Seiden society award, which now the Sarah Seiden society actually does exist. It did not when this movie came out. That's funny. It was created by Mankiewicz as a mockery of the pomposity and the, the self-regard of the New York theater scene. And now there is actually a Sarah Seiden society in Chicago, founded in part by Nancy Reagan's mother, that presents an actual award like the one from the film and did present that award to both Betty Davis and Celeste Holmes. So it's the bubber gump of the theater world. Yes, exactly. Um, Yeah, it's like just come back on itself now. It's just, yeah. But the thing that's interesting with that, the theater of his film, I think, is... And Mankiewicz never directed theater, though he always admired the theater. And it's funny because he captures the theater world so well, then he makes the Barefoot Contessa about Hollywood, a world he should know, and it's fine. But with this and it's fine it's it's it really it's just kind of there um what's interesting with this uh is that this movie i think doesn't work if it's about hollywood because i think the thing that makes this so interesting is ultimately 
mm-hmm. all that Eve achieves is a statue. She achieves a piece of gold because unlike film, if you make it in Hollywood, if you are a star in Hollywood, the idea is you're immortalized in film, you know? Yeah, only mm-hmm. fucking people in New York know Eve now. <laughs> and even then, like, her performances, once they're done, they're done. It's gone. It's ephemeral. And, you know, in the same way that in movies, yeah, obviously we've had 15 people play Batman or whatever, but, you know, in the movies, you know, you've most people have their iconic role and that's theirs. In theater, someone else is going to play that role. People are, more people are going to play that role always and always and always. Yeah. And so in the same way that someone will usurp Eve uh, and someone, you know, usurps Margot and all that and takes the role from them, someone else will play that role and it will just go on and on and on. And it is such a, I mean, that statue, the Sarah Sidens Award is in its own way a Maltese Falcon. You know, it is a lot of chaos and destruction in pursuit of a statue that means nothing. Totally. I, I and and to and to sort of jump on that as well. I, I speaking of sort of the ephemeral qualities of this of this film. There's you know to to kind of dive back into the 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 gender roles of it all or the femininity of this film. I mean, this film is about as 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 M Night Shyamalan did so brilliantly and old that time goes right. Like you get older, things slip away from you. Right. Like you're only in your prime for so long. Um, and then on top of that, the film is also sort of this post-war gender politics thing of, you know, it's per- post-World War II and women are sort of being forced back into these traditional female roles after a war where they were told to, you know, work in the factories and 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 do all that sort of stuff. And now they're being told to sort of, you know, go back and be and be housewives and what have you. This This ephemeral quality of femininity, of what it means to be a... Uh, a, a successful or or a, or whatever it is that men are looking for, for from women feels a like a moving target, and even if you do succeed at it, it, it you'll lose it eventually. Anyway. And it's 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 so funny too because when you think of the timeline of the movie, Eve's only been acting for what like two months, three months, yeah, and then she yeah. gets the award, and it's basically you know she gets her big break, gets trapped by George Saunders acts for a few months, gets her award, and then her Eve is sneaking into her hotel room. <laughs> like, it's just like, it's just, it's, it, it goes to this, like, yeah, like, it's the Maltese Falcon, where it's just all this for fucking nothing. Absolutely. Like, like they say in the beginning of the movie, we're all carnies. We're the original carnies. We're, we're, yeah. the, we're theater folk. We, we just travel around, we entertain people, and, and get that, that rush of the applause, and then... We're on to the next thing. We go to another state and do the same bullshit, and then people, you know, come see us. Then they go get their dinner, and you know, we're just a memory to them. But I, I think that to, to that point, the the more I think about this film, the more I'm unsure as to what Mankiewicz was ultimately trying to say with it, which isn't a bad thing. But I do think it's interesting, you know, as we as we continue to sort of unpack this movie. There's a lot of layers of darkness to it. There's a lot of interpretations of it. You can interpret it as a film, as, as I'm assuming the Academy did, as a film that, that is sort of lauding Hollywood, lauding actors, all of that. <laughs> I, I assume that that's how they interpreted it. But, oh, yeah. but there's obviously the much darker way of looking at this, which is that the whole thing is ephemeral. None of it matters. Nothing that we do ultimately really has any staying power. There's an Eve behind you no matter what you do. And that's just how it goes. And in that way, it's kind of a darker film 
than Sunset Boulevard is because even even with Sunset Boulevard being perhaps about, about mental illness and and a person that's you know you know off the rocker or what have you, it's also a very dark comedy in a, in a weird way. Like it's kind of taking the piss out of everything, but it's also kind of doing it with a wink and a nod. Whereas this film isn't really doing that. It's no. kind of got this facade of it being sort of like the, all kind of, yeah. you know. This one's very whatever, subversive. But it's much darker. Yeah. Because it's like, a lot more subversive than, than at, at first blush. Yeah, because when you, like, it starts and it's not that dark. Even with, like, the framing device, you kind of just, it's like, okay, there's going to be some drama, but how dark is this really going to get? You look at the poster right. for the movie, it looks like a fucking, like, uh, Stanley Don and Gene Kelly musical you're about <laughs> yeah, to walk yeah. oh, into. Oh, the poster's a yeah. nightmare. And, yeah. and then, like, like I said, like I said, the, like, really, by the time, when you get, she gets trapped in that the hotel room with George Saunders, and he's just like, "Well, no, this is yeah. what's actually going to happen." You go, "Oh, this is fucking dark." This, this woman is yeah. now a sex slave to this fucking yeah. creep, all because yep. she got too big for her Machiavellian britches, and yep. it was all for nothing because she's going to get replaced by someone in less than a year from her plan yep. being kicked into place. It's like this shit is fucking dark. And, but, but like to go yeah. off of what you were just saying about how, like, it's, it's kind of ultimately saying this is, this shit's all just like disappears into the wind immediately. Yeah. It yeah. didn't, it, it kind of isn't too dissimilar to what, um, I think Quentin was going for once upon a time in Hollywood, although he was doing yes. it more with like a warmth to how ephemeral it all is, where he, he's like yeah. every piece of art and every song, all the TV shows. Who the fuck talks about those things that are referenced in that movie? But he's making the point that at the time, everyone loved it. We went to the movies. We watched TV at the same time. And we watched Burt Reynolds on FBI. We went to see fucking uh, the new George right, right, right. Papard movie. But for 50, 60 years later, we're all sitting watching that movie. And other than freaks like me and Mike, we're like, people are like, what the fuck is this? Well, that's you're you're speaking to this idea of like of love letters to Hollywood, yeah. right? Of of movies, you know, like like an Ed Wood or something like that, where you know it's a filmmaker who's sitting down and just saying like, isn't it great that we get to do this and that we get to make things that people love? And that I don't have a problem with that. Obviously, this film is kind of posing as that, yeah. When really it's not that, but but I think which but makes that's it what... actually pretty layered. No, yeah, but that's what I'm kind of saying is where like there's so many love letters to movies that do yes. the isn't it great where at least it feels like once upon a time in hollywood was the only one that's like yeah most of this shit's gonna get forgotten in five years sure do I, I think part of it is the new york setting of it because i think and obviously um phil you're an la based person tom and i are new york um you know uh not that I, Kyle I is in your closet still i'm in a closet yes <laughs> But, uh, Phil, you know, you're, I mean, again, so I'm not going to talk yes. too much about Los Angeles. I don't really mm -hmm. know it that well. Uh, I wish I did. I, I wish you understood how many times I dream about even the parking garage at the Glendale Galleria now. Like, that's how bad it's Weird. gotten. I'm, okay. I'm, I miss it dearly. <laughs> um, okay. But I think there's something about when L.A. as a town and as an idea is very kind of onto the next thing, very new, but in a good way. It's kind of like. There's this feeling uh, in, you know, an, of kind of optimism and just like, yeah, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to go out west. I'm going to make something. I'm going to put my name on a billboard. I'm going to X, Y, Z. Whereas mm -hmm. New York, partly because it's been around so long, you know, in, in Hollywood, you can become immortal on the big screen. In New York, institutions are immortal. Theaters are immortal. You know, right, uh, buildings right. are immortal. But you, as a person in New York, 
fully understand that you will not that this this town will outlive you and that you are just a a you know to quote Shakespeare a player upon the stage and then and then you exit with New York I mean yes the theaters are still there you can go to uh the new Amsterdam theater and it's been around since like 1908 or what have you and and you can look at that and you can feel the history in the walls but no one can tell you who was ever playing on the stage of the new Amsterdam you know uh, yeah. If you have a if you have a single person who's got a theater named after him, it's John Wilkes Booth's brother. So you know it's not exactly. A, well, I mean, a I think I think the difference you could really you could lay it down like this: New York, uh, L.A. is a place that has a stretch of road where famous people imprint their hands on the sidewalk, and New York mm-hmm. says, "Get the fuck out of my way! I have to go somewhere." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it, you're, yeah. yeah, the whole West Coast East Coast thing is is interesting to sort of deconstruct, and I do think that the two cities are very different in the way that they perceive fame um you know i think there's also just something about there's a whimsy to out here there's a there you know people get on buses or planes and oh it's sunny los angeles <laughs> with hopes of it's sunny with the hopes of fame and and I, I get all of that and i and i do see the pros and cons of both of those things um and i do think this film is doing a good job of trying to deconstruct those ideas you know it's 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 kind of a it's it's a lot harder a movie to to really wrap your arms around than than you would think at first uh, at first blush. Now, Kyle, you had something you want to throw out there? Yeah, this actually is a, a perfect segue into my question because uh, we've been talking a little bit about um, you know connecting this movie with Sunset Boulevard. Um, Mike, you mentioned uh, Maltese Falcon. Uh, these are movies we've obviously covered. Uh, sometimes uh, there are people uh, I, uh, that need a little bit more encouragement outside of just a podcast, uh, maybe need uh, a movie or an influence or something. As a first-time watcher for All About Eve, one of the things I kind of kept um, gravitating towards, which kind of helped me enjoy it a lot more, um, and I don't have to worry about stealing a potential registry pick here, uh, was uh, was Birdman. Uh-huh. Uh, and we've been talking a lot about the relationship between uh, theater and, uh, and Hollywood, obviously. What would you say are like essential films uh, to kind of convince people uh, to check this out? I mean, Phil listed a few before. Yeah. But like even from yeah, like I mean, Mike I... and but even like Mike and Tom, like in terms of like your research and like your in terms of like episode prep, like is there something that about recent that... films? Yeah. Well, the other one that I would that I would also um, point to, and it might not seem necessarily a direct correlation, but Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. Oh, 100 percent. Definitely has. Um, I mean, obviously, it's got two leads. Obviously, their identities blur into one another, uh, literally, figuratively and in every other way. And obviously, it's a film also about about Hollywood. I mean, I, I think that I mean, I mentioned, obviously, um, the favorite earlier and, and, and Black Swan. Mm-hmm. The favorite, I think I'm pretty sure the favorite like it was a a conscious decision to be a all about Eve sort of format or, or what have you. But yeah, Mulholland Drive would be the other one that I would, I would highlight. I think, I think Kyle, it's interesting you brought up Birdman too. I was about, when I made my example about not knowing who's on the stage of the new Amsterdam, I was thinking of the scene in Birdman, which is not a film I love, but I, I, I like certain moments. The part where Edward Norton is walking across the stage as yes. what people, what many people have said is him doing Philip Seymour Hoffman <laughs> and walking across stage and just going, do you know which souls have tread these boards? And you're like, no, I don't. Um, I don't. That's the thing. You know, uh, we're talking about, especially if you talk about like Mulholland Drive or something like that, you know, that is, that is Hollywood. And, and that you, like I said, you could in theory do an all about even Hollywood. Uh, yeah. The more, even then, like, there's something about, uh, it's tough. 
all about Eve, if it has something in common, I mean, its its arc is very similar in a way to A Star is Born and all the many versions of A Star is Born in the idea of for one star to rise, another must fall, right? And the, a story of two characters meeting while one is on the ascendancy and one is on the decline. The difference being, aside from, obviously, A Star is Born being quintessentially a love story, I think the key difference is with A Star is Born, that is the story of an old star, especially if you go back to the original film, right, which is about actors, right? The original Star is Born is not about musicians. You go back to the original film, that is about the old guard, the old actor, recognizing not only am I past my prime, I'm actually around too long. It is time for me to go to make room for this new star. Whereas mm-hmm. with All About Eve, you know, when we, and to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, when we talked about um, Margot not hating Eve, I think the key issue with Eve for Margot is the idea of Margot looks at Eve as, I, I remember being this young, you know, aspiring star. Like, I, I see that passion in her. And I think that if you asked Margot, oh, could you see Eve uh, being the next you, kind of taking your spot when you decide to step away from the spotlight, I think Margot would say, absolutely. I think the issue and the creates tension for Eve is Eve wants to do it too quickly. That right. Eve is trying to push Margot out of the spotlight rather than Margot necessarily thinking she's ready. And at the same time, you know, and to t- when Kyle's talking about what other movies you can relate it to, I don't know if I can think of a particular film, but, but you know, one of the things about All But Eve that makes it interesting, and I hope people check it out for this, is it's actually not just about a young starlet trying to usurp her, because even without Eve, Eve exacerbates it, but this is also about Margot reconciling with getting older. Oh, absolutely. But also it's, it's about her feeling, I mean, I don't even get the impression that she even really wants to be married that she even really wants to be in a relationship like she's a very independent person and and you just you feel all these sort of roles being forced on to margot's character mm-hmm. um more so than anybody else in the film and all she wants is just to like be left alone to like do what she wants to do and more power to her well i think she also wants security i think that and i don't mean that as in the security sure. of a man what I mean no, I is, Margot is is perfectly happy with the dynamic that she has, right? Yeah. Uh, and with the boyfriend that she has and all of that, she's perfectly content. And then Eve is a disruptor, right? Oh, for sure. Some might say a, a corruptor. corruptor. <laughs> Got him. For, for context, anyone, Tom just recorded an episode of Podcast Like It's 1999 about the corruptor. So those are the little things. I did. You're the, gonna... I pulled an exact fucking moment like this on the episode of 99. You did. You did. It was great. Oh, Lord. Um, yeah. But so Eve is a disruptor, and you start to notice, like, it's the same way. The, the issue with, with Margot's relationship with her boyfriend, later husband, where he keeps having to reassure her that right. he, he only wants to be with her. Look, we've all been in relationships, and, and when you get a little older, you realize that there are certain times where a fight in your relationship, where your partner is kind of going like, do, do you still want to be with me? Like, what's this about? Isn't about you guys at all. That it's, no. they've got yeah. something else going on, and they want to make sure that their world is still stable. Now, the interesting thing about the, the two of them, in a way, uh, and, and, and I may sound a little dated here, but, you know, when Kyle's talking about movies that, that make it this weirdly, in a way, one of the films I thought of while watching this, and it's not my registry pick or anything like that, uh, but I love it to death, is The Big Chill. Mm. Very different movies, but The Big Chill is another case of, like, everybody's life is in a certain place, and then this one bomb is dropped in the middle, and you're kind of watching these people scramble. 
this movie is a much much more of a even though obviously your focus is on Eve and, and Margot, this is a much more ensemble film in terms of like other people have shit going on too. There are scenes and whole arguments between Margot and Bill that ultimately have nothing to do with Eve and are just a couple's fight, right? There's yeah. little things going on through you know there's a lot more going on than just the Eve usurping Margot because people uh, maybe don't realize this movie's over two hours long. Yeah. Uh, this movie's two hours and yes, eighteen minutes long, it is. and and that's because a lot of it, uh, you know, is kind of a lot more character based. You know, obviously Marilyn Monroe shows up for a couple scenes, uh, which has no direct bearing on e- on, on Margot per se, uh, but it's just fleshing out this this world. So, and again, the Big Chill is ultimately an optimistic film. <laughs> But there is this yeah, element the of is, yeah, sorry, but there is this element of particularly with the the women characters uh, trying to reconcile with like what how can I get what I want while still fitting in the lanes that society lays out for me? Can I have a career and a kid? You know that thirty something dilemma, um, which thirty something maybe hasn't aged the best, but you know <laughs> that kind of dynamic. And with sure. with Margot, there is a question of the stability of her relationship versus the stability of her career. And one way of reading all about Eve, I think, is the fact that perhaps the film is arguing to a degree that it is not possible to have a stable home life and also uh, a massive star career on the stage because you will always be competing against someone who is willing to sacrifice that at-home stability in favor of greater stage success. I would also, to you know, to... I think there's something to be said too for the fact that that it's a woman that has to make these choices. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that women have to make far more choices than men do, unfortunately, in terms of whether or not they can have the career and have the home life. And and society keeps projecting these ideas as to as to what that means. And I think that the film is quite prescient in that, in terms of speaking to that that unfortunate notion. Well, I think that just goes to the you know the Mankiewicz of it all. I mean, the guy was you know yeah. between him and his brother, you know, they had so much fucking experience in this industry that they and you know as such good writers that they need to be able to observe human behavior that they definitely were able to observe the weird fucked up dynamics that existed (laughs) not just in hollywood but in the theater on tv just like in general just as actors this roving band of carnies that exist in this country and just seeing like yeah isn't this shit weird that just like we just throw women away and that they have to like wait, wait for their turn. And they got to wait. Like once they turn 40, the clock starts a ticking and some young broads going to come up and take their spot. If they don't, you know, come hunting for their spot before their time. And, you know, fucking this writer dipshit can just decide to leave his wife and pretty much suffer no consequences because she comes right back to him. Once Eve is revealed to be uh, kind of a feckless idiot herself, you know, she oversteps and then, and, and just Bill can run off to Hollywood and direct the movie and come back and they fight, but then he's back and they're great. And all this shit, like all the guys kind of just exist and do whatever they want, where all the women are just kind of like, fuck, we got totally. things to deal with. Totally. Hey, I want to share a quote because I, I loved it. I told this to Tom earlier, uh, but I was watching, uh, a documentary about uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, and uh, you ha- uh, th- he was asked all about Eve and, and Barefoot Contessa. Are, do they reflect your disillusionment in Hollywood? And Joseph Mankiewicz's answer was, quote, well, not my disillusion about Hollywood. My awareness of the facts does not necessarily mean disillusion. I was never disillusioned. You can't fall in with a gang of thieves and be disillusioned about their lack of virginity. 
I was never, not Oof. for one minute, was I ever illusioned about Hollywood. Jesus. You just got manked. <laughs> you got manked. Yeah, I, I will say this, though. You know, it, it's, as you were talking, first of all, that quote, and also, Tom, what you were saying, it also makes me think about attention and and how everyone in this film is just in need of attention. Yeah. Um I would I would argue that a lot of people in this city are in need of attention. Um and I think that Sunset Boulevard speaks to that as well. Um it's it's just people just wanting your I mean just wanting you to care about them. Wanting you to pay attention to them. Wanting you to and and I think that that's there's this void that exists in in all the characters that's that's looking to be filled. And they're just filling it in all the wrong ways. And I, I mean, Sunset Boulevard obviously is, is is similar in that respect as well. I mean, both of them are a commentary on the superficiality of this city, um, of this industry, maybe more specifically, the the you know the the longing that exists and this chasing something that that can really never be fulfilled. You know, I, I I've talked about this with friends. I'm as guilty of this as anybody. But this town is a, is filled with people that cannot keep their eyes on their own paper. Right. Like they cannot just find their own happiness in what they're doing. They need to either have what someone else has or be chasing what someone else has. It's just it's 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 exhausting. <laughs> I mean, it's it. But it's it is a it's very much a in the in the DNA of this of this industry. And I think that's I think you're right, Phil. That's the problem. There are too many uh, people trying to copy somebody else's success. By the way, do you want to read my pilot about Johnny Appleseed waking up in the year 2021? <laughs> sure. Um, anyway. Sure. sure. <laughs> I, I, but I think you're right in that regard. And I think that one interesting thing about Eve in this film, are you aware that there was a musical based on this story? No. So, Phil, this is your second time coming on the show for a movie <laughs> That provided the basis for a Tony-winning Broadway musical. I did know about the Sunset Boulevard one, because I know Glenn Close was in that one. In the 70s, there was an adaptation of the same short story, Wisdom of Eve, but that show was called Applause. And the only song I think anybody remembers from that show was the title song, Applause, and it is Eve singing about, like, what do we do this for? Why am I doing all this? It's for the applause. I need the applause. Which gives Eve... And it gives Eve a lot more... um, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, voice than the movie does, which doesn't really mm-hmm. give us much look into her mind or why she's doing what she's doing. But you're, I mean, like this, the musical brings it even more to the idea of like, that's really what this is about. This is about somebody trying to fill uh, yeah. an emptiness and a void. And I do wonder part of it when it comes to the marriage versus uh, stage dynamic is partly like a question of, do I need the validation of the faceless masses if I have the validation of one person that means something to me at home or the validation of a group of friends? Right. You know, I mean, because it's important that at the end when Eve's accepting her award and she's thanking people, it's four faces that look sour. It's it's not just yeah. Eve. Yeah. It's four bridges she burned and she has nobody. All she has yeah. is a guy who's exhibiting control over her writing a puff piece for his column. Like that's that's it. Yeah, it's I mean it, it it's this is this is not the first film. Uh it never it will not be the last film to to speak of the idea of, you know, you can't take it with you. Yeah. You know, and, and, and what is it all about and what are you what what are you really looking for? Like it's and, and I, I hate even the whole like notion of like happiness and all of that. I just mean the idea of professionalism and, and your personal lives and, and, and what is important to you and why is it important to you? Um, that validation that you're speaking of that this town, I mean, this is a town that has 
many, many award shows that fewer and fewer people are watching. It's, it's, yeah, it, it really speaks to all of that. And, and it did it, you know, 70 years ago, over 70 years ago. Um, just to, uh, go back to Kyle's, uh, question, cause, uh, I just want to give my answer and I, it, it genuinely is once upon a time in Hollywood because who, who is Rick Dalton, if not Margot of 1960s television, a guy who's yep. over the hill, realizing he's over the hill, um, trying so desperately to stay relevant. I mean, Cliff Booth is basically his birdie, the one who you can clearly tell has lived through some more shit since birdie's the one who clocks Eve like immediately. Um, yeah. There's even the bit like with the little girl uh, acting in Lancer with him, who's kind of like if Eve wasn't a scheming asshole, like he, he, he could have like a, <laughs> like he, he, he makes this relationship with her, which is expanded upon in the script slash the book he released, where there's more scenes of him, like realizing like, Oh, this girl's the future. This girl's great. She's like reigniting my love for acting and all that. And um, yeah, I think uh, if anybody wants to get something to get their juices flowing for all about Eve, I think once upon a time in Hollywood, I mean, Quentin is a fucking, we all know a cinephile freak who just is just bleed cinema. There's no doubt in my mind. He had all about Eve in mind when he was making that movie. Oh, for sure. For sure. I do want to uh, comment on, on once the, the end of once upon a time in Hollywood, which, which yeah. obviously can be interpreted in, in many ways. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that there's sort of the, the, the revisionist history, magic realism of the end of the film, obviously, which gives Rick Dalton um, the possibility of, of redemption, I guess, in his career and what have you. But but it's all I mean, it's literally called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So it's clearly a fairy tale. Um, and it's clearly sort of trying to sort of say, like, look at what we've lost. So so I do think that it's 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 in its own way kind of a dark, sad ending. Yeah. Uh, in terms of 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 where we've sort of where we are. I mean, now especially because especially because that ending is uh, when when he walks through the gates to go up to Sharon Tate's house and meet her for the first yeah. time after talking like the whole movie. Oh, my God, Polanski and Sharon Tate live next yeah. to me. The music that's playing is uh, from a movie called The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. Uh, John Milius wrote it. John Huston directed it. Paul Newman's in it. And it's a movie that starts with the title card saying, this is not necessarily how the story actually happened, but maybe it's how it should have happened. And, um, you know, it's a movie that's been fucking discourse to death in the last two years, in the last two months since the book came out. My view is that Rick doesn't, like, become a star again. He just has this brief little glimpse of happiness. Ultimately, the movie's just about you know, the times were going to change, Vietnam happened, Altamont's going to happen, you know, all this shit's going to happen. It Sharon Tate didn't need to die for the 70s to happen. But yeah, I mean, it's it's essentially, I think, uh, if you guys want to see something about aging in, ho- aging in Hollywood, about the transient nature of art and how things last through time, um, yeah. but also the kind yeah. of, like, love that real artists can have in this stupid, stupid industry. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood will kind of get you jazzed up, and for as dark as that ending of that movie gets, it'll at least warm you up for the the subversive darkness that kind of sucker yeah. punches you in this movie. Because there's not totally like, agree. because you may think, oh my god, he just brained that Manson girl with a can of dog food. I think Eve getting trapped by a sex predator is a little darker in my mind. 
<laughs> just, just my hot take here. I think sex slavery is bad. <laughs> just going out on a limb. You're missing out is against sex slavery. There you go. You heard it here first. Um, also, a uh, question for you guys. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's anything uh, in this movie, to this movie, the making of this movie, Joseph Mankiewicz's connection to this movie? Maybe Joe is dealing with some, uh, I don't know, dealing with some shit with his brother. Like, maybe there's like a Herman kind of like sibling rivalry going on. Because, I mean, this feels kind of almost citizen kane-esque yeah. in what's what's and how it's written and the structure of it and all that and the subversive darkness to it but the also the the bleeding heart humanity that's in there there's no doubt i mean in the comment there's two different commentaries in the criterion and one of them features both chris mankowitz and uh one of howard mankowitz's uh, howard mankowitz's biographers and both of them flat out i mean kenneth geist i should say uh, and both of them outright just saying like yes one million percent not this movie is based on the tension and envy between joseph and herman because herman had the oscar and joseph was jealous uh that joseph drew partly from herman when it came to eve kind of destroying herself with alcohol and age but also that joseph was drawing from his own marriage to actress rose stradner for the arguments between uh bill and Margot. Uh, he's, it's very much like, you know, his biographers and his own son kind of just flat out went, yeah, no, that's, that was clearly, uh, hanging over him. The, the, uh, success of his brother who he maybe looked at and went, oh God, what's happening to you? Because, interesting. because, uh, I don't know, just like watching it the first time a few months ago and then rewatching it today, the beginning of that movie is so much the opening of Citizen Kane. Yeah. But. Again, I'm going to preface this saying, I really like this movie, think it's great. It's kind of a less graceful version of Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. It's a little, you know, like it's it's longer, it feels longer. It's it's it doesn't have that pop that Herman and Orson brought to that movie, but again, I love the movie, but it does have a little bit of that f- feeling of the the younger brother being like, "Oh, that son of a bitch. I'm going to show him." And then Herman died 3 years later, so, you know, who who had the less left? He won. Yeah. One thing worth noting, uh, and this gets brought up in the commentary, uh, Kenneth Geist brings it up, because you're talking about the length of the movie and all. Uh, he mentions that Daryl Zanuck uh, was instrumental in helping uh, Mankiewicz prevent his, strips, uh, his scripts from getting over long, even though in the commentary, even Kenneth Geist says, all about Eve is maybe a little over long. But he talks about uh, Zanuck helping him. And then I just want to share this. I told this to Tom last night. I don't know why this broke me. But this is a real statement by Chris Mankiewicz, not a joke. Chris Mankiewicz goes, "Yeah, Daryl actually helped my father slim down a letter to three ri- a letter to three wives because originally it was a letter to four wives, so he just cut one of the wives." And I wow. truly felt like I just watched a Simpsons bit. <laughs> um, that like I had to That's stop what amazing. I was doing and like look that up because I was like, "Oh, is he doing a bit?" You know, because it sound that sounds like an all about that sounds Eve. like a bit. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. sounds like an all about Eve witty line of like in the movie when. Bill says, I've denied the rumor that you were in our American cousin the night Lincoln was shot. Like, those kind of lines. But no, that's that's just real. Uh, it was originally yeah, that's four amazing. That's and, amazing. Yeah, and I, you know, I love those fucking stories of old Hollywood. Just old, old entertainment industry stories like that. You know, like I told Mike that I just read the Abbott and Costello book, and they, you know, they only broke big because when they were doing their radio show, the producer didn't like the bit who's on first. 
But Lou was like, no, this is our best bit. So he tricked the producer after a few weeks or a few months of doing other bits, coming to like the the studio like an hour before being like, yeah, we're out of bits. We just got nothing else to do. We 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 just can't go on. And the producer going, like, "What are you talking about? What are you talking about? You can't go on." So Lou's, Lou's like, "We we got nothing, man. You want you want new bits? We don't have anything." Guys, like, you can't think of anything new. He goes, "I don't know. We'll try. We'll try to. We'll go into our uh, you know backstage and try to think of something. But we just I don't know." Comes back like thirty minutes later, thirty minutes before the show starts. It's like, yeah, I told you, we just got nothing. And the guy goes, "What about that baseball bit you keep pestering me to do?" And Lou's like, "Yeah, That's you amazing. know, I I think we can do that." And that was the highest rated show they did. And that's what got uh, them all their infamy. And that's when Hollywood came a knocking. You know, it's interesting you say that, Tom, because it makes me think of something. Which is, we love those stories. Like, we as people who love movies and who love theater and the industry, we love those stories of, oh, everything could have been different but for this one thing. And like, Oh, here's a crazy story about how somebody got their big break. You know, we love the stories of, oh, this guy was actually just, he uh, got lost on the studio lot. And they went, you, come be the lead in this movie. We love those stories. And I do think that in this movie, us watching this movie, Eve is the, ostensibly the villain of the film, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to usurp Margot. By a simple shift in perspective, like, it's important that Eve never offers her thoughts the way Margo does. By a simple shift in perspective, this is the kind of story we love. Like, we love, and always have, loved stories that if you take out uh, just a teensy bit of the conniving, the actual story of, oh, she wasn't even Margo's understudy. She was just her assistant. But the understudy wasn't around that night, and Margot got delayed on the road, and well, that's how Eve Harrington came to the stage the first time. We love those stories. We love those narratives. So I'm just thinking about the fact that, like, uh, All About Eve does kind of make you question in some way how many of those, they were just in the right place in the right time origin stories of all these stars and all these great films and all these great things. How many of those maybe have a bit more of a nefarious or a bit more of a planned origin. So what you're trying to tell me is maybe Lou Costello fucked the producer's wife. <laughs> maybe. And then and then but, realized, oh no, I didn't actually want to fuck her. Now I'm a sex slave. No, but like, uh, you know, like why did people love, even though it's full of inaccuracies, why did people love Hollywood Babylon when it first got printed? Because so many stories that we got out of old Hollywood of, well, golly gee, it uh, turns out that Clark Gable just happened to be in the right spot at the right time or anything like that. How many of those things that we heard did we kind of go, there's no way it worked out that cleanly? Well, gee willikers, a hole opened in the ground and Rita Hayworth just popped right out. Yeah, exactly. That type of shit. And even though, again, there's a good chunk of Hollywood Babylon has been disproven and it's just gossip and all that. People gravitate to that too because there is that element of uh, in your best days you want to believe you know it's the same thing as and uh, you know like in your best days you want to believe that Walt Disney saw a little mouse crawl out of a hole and went well by golly I suppose I'll call you Mickey and he drew a cartoon mouse and everything was great and on your worst days in your Hollywood Babylon days you want to believe the most nefarious thing of you know he was a secret Nazi and he was X Y Z. The truth is, of course, somewhere in the middle. When I, I think that that's actually why this film's so great. I mean, we've yes. obviously we've just spent an hour and a half talking about it, but but it's not even about that it can be perceived kind of the way you want to perceive it. Mm -hmm. I mean, a yeah. lot of 
and I, I don't I don't want to put too much emphasis on on best picture winners because you know it is what it is. But the movies that tend to win are the ones that 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 the overt reading of it is one that's perhaps slightly more positive. But this film shows I, just 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 as talking about it today, just how layered it is, how much is going on in it, and and how easy it is to to perhaps misinterpret it as a as a as a much more superficial film than it really is. I also think there's something to, and maybe why it won, besides just, you know, the different rings, I think there's something to the fact that while both this and Sunset Boulevard are obviously, you know, indictments of the entertainment industry, yeah, uh, because Sunset Boulevard is so much bigger, it's, it's, a, it's a lot easier to detach yourself from it and see them as big theatrical, you know, uh, Greek tragedy characters. Whereas with All About Eve, you have to wonder how many of the people in that voting block watched that movie and went, yeah, I knew an Eve. For sure. Let's face it. And it's, and it's not even just the entertainment industry. I mean, for God's sake, you know, uh, all of us in any job have met somebody yeah. who is willing to do some, some fucked up shit to get ahead. And it's so funny because when you look back on it later, you're sitting there going, why did this person go to this great a length to get a step ahead? And I wonder how much of it is everybody in that voting audience went. Yeah, I know an Eve. I know an Addison DeWitt. There's something about yeah. Addison says it at one point in the movie, and it's it's kind of a justification for everything that happens in a way when he says, we're a breed apart from humanity, we theater folk. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting, one thing I wonder with that line is, I don't know if it's Joseph Mankiewicz necessarily saying that overtly, but it is the kind of thinking a, an Addison DeWitt or an Eve Harrington uses to justify the things they do. Absolutely. To gain power Absolutely. in that industry. Yeah. And, I, and I think that that's an element, too, is is everybody who was voting knew an Eve. For sure. It's I mean, listen, it's it's a very good movie that just, um, you know, it's a little it's it's more accessible than Sunset Boulevard. It's not as alienating. Um, and uh, its themes as dark as they are, are just a lot more subtle. Yeah, And I think that, you know, and we'll we'll get into this in a sec, but I think that there's also an element of. Sunset Boulevard is very big and takes very big swings, and we love those. All of us here were gushing over it, you know, a year ago, but I can also see that being the kind of thing where with Sunset Boulevard, maybe something doesn't work for you. Maybe it makes it a creative decision that you go, oh, no, I'm not on board. Whereas All About Eve right. is so grounded in reality that you can't get mad at almost any of the decisions that happen in the plot because you go, yeah, that's what would happen. I mean, the only thing, if I can make one thing that I've found a little jarring, and I have only one real critical note here in my notes, is it's weird that it's an hour and 50 minutes in the first time it does a time-lapse montage. And that may seem like a minor thing, but this movie is so much like in the moment that it's weird that there's one single point where they go, yeah, and then I guess Eve got successful. And you go, oh, I, all right. I guess I never, I never thought about that. It is, yeah, that, that is kind of a thing that's weird about this movie was like when you watch it the second time, you're like, oh, wait, this movie takes place over the span of eight months. This feels like it happens over like three years. And it's like, it would be different if there were montages and time lapses throughout. It's just, in any event, uh, to that, I one thing I wanted to single out though that I feel nobody talks about, everybody talks about how Joseph Mankiewicz was not a particularly visual director right? Mm -hmm. That's a knock on this film. It's a knock on his filmography. There is something great about the fact that in the scene where Eve is first telling her fake story, uh, which by the way, in the short story, 
of, of that all about Eve is based on the wisdom of Eve. The short story describes Eve as faking a Norwegian accent. Uh, so I'm very glad sure, they decided sure. to not do that yeah, in the yeah, movie. I, I, I don't consider me on that side. I would have loved to have seen someone <laughs> in 1950 try to do a Norwegian accent. She just sounds like the Swedish chef for the, the first chunk of the film. No, but like in the short story, it's the idea of, oh, she's faking a Norwegian accent, tells everybody she's Norwegian. And then when she steps on a on stage to take Margot's role, suddenly the accent's gone. But I want to say, when Eve is telling a story, after Birdie re-enters the room, the camera follows her as though from Eve's point of view. Like Eve is watching the only one in the room she hasn't won over yet. Then, when we cut to the opposite angle, once Birdie has taken her place in the room, we cut to the opposite angle, and all you're seeing are the four heads of the people sitting down, you know, uh, Margot and, and all them, the four heads of people sitting down framed exactly like they are a theater audience watching her tell her fake story, which I thought was a really interesting touch for a movie that is not That's often cool. singled yeah. out for its visual decisions, you know? I, yeah, I, I mean, it, we talked about this earlier, you know, the, the movie is not filled with um, particularly arresting photography or it, it, it's, 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 just, it's just not a, a showy movie in that way. Which is, I think, why the end, the final shot is is powerful for a myriad of reasons, but it's it's one of the showier shots in the movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I kind of love it. It's it's sort of you know, it, it's got a pretty light touch. Visually. It was also going to be a bit more on the nose originally. I don't know if either of you guys came across this. Originally, Claudette Colbert was playing Margot, and Anne Baxter was cast partly on how much she looked like Claudette Colbert. Mm-hmm. With the idea being that as the film progressed, you would watch Anne Baxter start to style herself more and more to look like Claudette Colbert in a very single white female kind of way. Um, Great movie. Claudette Colbert, <laughs> Claudette Colbert dropped out days before filming because of an industry and Betty Davis stepped in. But now they were in a situation of, well, Anne Baxter doesn't look like Betty Davis. You can't do that. So instead, the decision was made to actually have uh, Eve's costumes more and more replicate well, that makes sense. Yeah, And that so makes sense. watching it again with that in mind, it's very interesting. Um, first off, Betty Davis, the reason Edith Head gets an Oscar for this thing, even though Edith Head was working at Paramount, I think, at the time, is that Betty Davis insisted that Edith Head do her costumes. Um, and Charles Lemaire apparently was not thrilled. But if you watch the movie again, and anybody who's listening to this, go back and watch it. An interesting thing is that every element... And whatever outfit uh, Margot is wearing, Eve is wearing not an exact replica, but when Margot is at the party in what's probably her most famous outfit, which is that sleeveless dress, uh, or not sleeveless, yeah, the shoulder, you know, uh, the, the 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 dress without the shoulders, right? We, we all know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, sure. Yes. In that, when you see Eve enter the party, she is also wearing a shoulderless dress, but it's shorter, it's tighter, and it's sexier. Later at the restaurant, Eve is wearing something, you know, a dress with chiffon along the top. Yeah, I mean, Margaret's wearing with chiffon along the top. Eve emerges in a dress with chiffon along the top, except again, it's tighter, it's shorter, it's sexier. Like she's, it was a conscious decision on those costumes to try and every time Margot is wearing something, Eve appears wearing the sexy new model of Margot. I think costumes. that's a, I mean, I personally, I think that's a gift. I think that if, if the actress looked, if the two actresses looked similar, as much as I like single white female, um, I, I don't think it helps them. I think that what you're talking about, costumes, the, the, again, comes back to sort of like 
whether their their hand was forced or not, the subtlety that exists in this film is actually its strength. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And there, and I mean, also Betty Davis is what makes this movie in a way because she yeah, the fact is, that she almost didn't get the role is insane. But, she I mean, is campy. She is theatrical. I mean, it's yeah. worth noting that this movie this movie survives how it does in part. And I don't want to get too in Louise with this, but obviously it won Best Picture. Of course, it was celebrated in its day. But what kept this movie alive throughout the 60s and 70s was a strong gay following. That, and yeah, you can no, read about this sure. in a number of books that, that you know, gay fans showed up. I mean, they loved Betty Davis. And they loved the fact that it was so campy. And the fact that her delivery of some of these lines could be so big, you know. Obviously, the bumpy night line, things like that, uh, you know. And apparently, according to Sam Stagg and others, like, it was almost like it was almost like a midnight movie for a while because people were showing up to see it at rep houses and learning the dialogue and shouting it along at the screen and keeping this movie's legacy alive. And what I think is interesting about that is that the midnight movie culture can be reductive. You know, it can it can sometimes take a great film and in the moment kind of treat it way too ironically. But it does also keep a movie alive enough to be rediscovered and be mined by other people watching it in the same way that, you know, something like Rocky Horror Picture Show was a flop when it first came out. If it weren't for the cult around it uh, showing up and screaming dialogue at the film and laughing at it, it probably wouldn't be so prevalent that nowadays scholars and, and people who are interested in film can go back and watch it and pick up on it's satirical edge and pick up on the way it's riffing on old Hollywood, uh, on old Hollywood monster films and all that. The same way that we're all sitting here getting to dive into all of the subtlety of all about Eve because of the audiences that kept it alive instead of viewing it as how it might've been viewed if it was left to the public consciousness, which is, Oh, that littler movie that beat sunset Boulevard, you know, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. One last note before I get into the, the Oscars, I do want to note, apparently there's an alternate timeline uh, where they had gone with their original casting and Ronald Reagan played Bill Sampson and his future wife, Nancy Reagan, played Karen. That almost, uh, that almost happened. What, what could have been? I, I, my life is filled with thoughts about the almost gotten Ronald Reagan roles. I can't, I can't deny it. My heart yearns for a worse version of this movie. <laughs> Like, that's right. the thing. Well, never forget the Warner Brothers press release that said Ronald Reagan was playing the Rick part in Casablanca. Uh, just imagine that. Um, what, what were you going to say about the Oscars? Um, <laughs> so, and we've hinted at this uh, already because obviously we talked about the same Oscar ceremony um, last season. We did. We um, did. All about Eve won Best Picture. The other Best Picture mm -hmm. nominees were Born Yesterday, Father of the Bride, King Solomon's Mines, and Sunset Boulevard. It was also nominated for Best Director, which it won. Best Actress, mm -hmm. both for Ann Baxter and Betty Davis, who both lost to Judy Holliday for Born Yesterday. Uh, a Great. fun anecdote about that is apparently at one point there was a conversation at a party and Ann Baxter and Betty Davis were both there. Ann Baxter said, you know, I probably should have accepted a, a Supporting Actress nomination instead of pushing for Supporting Actress. And Betty Davis rightly went, yes, you should have. <laughs> um... <laughs> Amazing. Best Supporting Actor nomination for George Sanders, who won for his role as Addison mm -hmm. DeWitt. Uh, Celeste Holm was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, uh, but lost to Josephine Hull for Harvey. Uh, All About Eve won Best, essentially Best Adapted Screenplay. It lost Best Score to Sunset Boulevard. It won Best Sound Recording. Uh, lost Best Art Direction to Sunset Boulevard. 
lost best cinematography to the third man, won best costume design, and lost best film editing to King Solomon's Mines. So it was not wow. an epic sweep, but it, it does did feel walk like away it though. Because people yeah. talk about how it was not like it's generally speaking, whenever you have a film like a Titanic or something like that where it gets a whole slew of nominations, they talk about Eve's I think Eve still holds the record as most nominations. Am I crazy in that? Hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't it's, know. It, it feels as though it. I mean, anyway, I, I just feel like All About Eve is is the watermark that everyone kind of talks about when it comes to the Oscars. I mean, I it's it's no. I mean, I I did La La Land end up taking that? Didn't that get like every possible I mean, thing? Another another ode to Hollywood. Oh <laughs> uh, no, I take that back. You you are you are. Uh, okay, so. All about Eve got 16 categories available for nomination. Uh, it got 14 nominations. There were 16 categories available for nomination. Uh, yes, and then Titanic and La La Land. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yep. But uh, go. but came away a little uh, a little less than I think people might have expected. Yeah, um, I think people always assume that it like swept all the majors, and it it did not. Well, it's because it's one of those weird things, and uh, you know, it's not the only thing. You know, we're not the only thing that says, but. The, there are certain movies you look at and go, you can't give this best picture if you don't also give it blank, best you know? Picture. Yeah. Yeah. Or in, in this case, uh, you know, with, with the acting performances, like I've yeah. heard the argument plenty of times that, you know, yes, Mahershala won best supporting actor for green book, but that's because if you think green book is worthy of best picture, that is because, well, but yeah. it's like, that is because of Mahershala. You can't give it one without the other. Right. That's the weird, to go back to Kyle bringing up Birdman, that's kind of the weird thing about Birdman is if you're giving Birdman best picture. And you don't give Keaton best actor. That's the thing. Like, that cast is what carries that movie. So with All About Eve, it does feel wild. And I feel bad in a way. I do feel bad for Judy Holliday in Born Yesterday. It's not a terrible performance by any means, but it is just a thing where you look at it and go, oh, this is... This beat out three of the most iconic performances in American in the history cinema. of cinema. Yeah, yeah I know. You yeah. know, I you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I I think that it it happens periodically. I mean, it's a numbers game too. You know what I mean? Um, it happens. You know, every now and then where it's a tough category and people aren't really sure and they're not they're they're trying to guess what other people are going to go for, go for and then the, the 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 numbers break a certain way and and a and a. You get a winner that you didn't think you were going to get. Well, Phil, thank you so much for uh, coming back to kick off our second season. It means a whole heck of a lot. Oh my um, god, my, it was absolutely my pleasure, and 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 to to talk about you know masterpieces with you guys is is always a blast. Folks should absolutely check out podcasts like it's nineteen ninety nine. Um, Please do. Which is uh, you know I say it on your show. I say it on mine. It's 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 my favorite podcast, and every once in a while That's I still so I still get uh, confused at the fact that I get to be on it. Like, it's yeah. a very strange yeah, it's, feeling. It's so fucking it's weird, very man. Surreal. <laughs> like, I'm, we, we like, I, like, I know I'm not getting the fucking cream of the crop of fucking <laughs> cinema when I come onto the show. So it's it's a little it's a little bit of a case of like, all right, the garbage man's here. But <laughs> that's not true. No, but just, it's it is it's you. so yeah. weird. It is it really is weird. Is and I keep enough. going back to that episode that was before my first episode on your guys' show where you're like hyping me up, and I'm like. Who the fuck are they talking about? They're talking <laughs> like the people they've had on their fucking show that they didn't talk with as much reverence <laughs> as they talked about some fucking shitbird from Long Island. 
who's just like who's who's like tangentially connected to like anything industry related. I'm like, what the fuck? How am I still doing this? And they keep wanting me back. We love you guys. We love you guys. We love that you guys are willing to go there. Oh, folks. So folks should absolutely check out not only the main show, the main feed, Mm. but you guys have a Patreon as well. Yes, Um, Patreon. If you guys uh, give, you know, subscribe at the five dollar level, you get to hear all of the films they're going through of 1989. Mm-hmm. If you go ten dollars, uh, you get the video component as well. Yeah, so if that's true. if you listeners have ever been curious about where Tom and I live, and you want to see, <laughs> if you, um, if you want to see yeah, how yes. poorly Mike has aged from college, and if you want to yeah, see, oh yeah, and if you want to see me look like a fucking how... heavy metal roadie. <laughs> but if you want to see the incredible collection of DVDs and Blu-rays that yeah, Tom has, yeah. I logged on um, yesterday and fucking Ernie, the producer, is like, "Oh my god!" He's like, "I'm jealous <laughs> of your." He's like, "I'm jealous of your collection. I wish I could own that many, but I move too it's much." It's incredible. Tom has the Library it's of Congress incredible. of Blu-rays. So yeah, that's true. Tom, he really does. It's, but yeah. You know, meanwhile, uh, so you know, if whenever it comes out, if folks see the video for my "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids" uh, episode, it's going to come out I, soon. I, 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 it's, it's, it it's will a, surprise no one. It, it is a little bit of chaos. It will surprise <laughs> no one that that episode requires the most amount of editing. <laughs> um, so we, we're, we're still figuring that out. Why, why, Phil? Do I, did I maybe supply you with how you know what, thirty minutes worth of extra audio? <laughs> attack on yeah yes no you you did just that also in fact, also right? mike's sad boy bullshit about how life sucks and everything because shut uh, up yeah. mike you're the one with a girlfriend you fucking jerk off <laughs> for i've listened back to the pokemon episodes my first parents podcast in 1999 and i sound both like i just blew five rails because i'm very hyped up i'm very energetic you're very hyped up <laughs> um i was having the abs- i was having the absolute worst day i had just found out that i had lost a job that i'd been in the running for for like a month an hour before we recorded. Well, so I was just in a bleak place. Um, and then I did Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And both episodes, I realized I just talked very sad on them. Uh, so I promised <laughs> myself my next appearance on your show, I would not make jokes about how miserable life is or anything. And I, I, if I can spoil this, uh, I show up again yeah, please, please. to talk about the pilot of Futurama. And then you and I get very hung up on the suicide booth. <laughs> In the pilot of Futurama, so yeah, it you're like anyway. the suicide joke's the best joke, and I'm like, uh... <laughs> yeah, it, and and it should surprise yeah. no one that I am less professional on 99 than I am on this show. Uh, yesterday, it's great. yesterday, it's great. going, I don't give a fuck. I'll say it. Ridley Scott was fucking useless after Blade Runner. <laughs> That's, and uh, I don't agree. Folks should subscribe to Podcast Likes 1999. They should check out the, the Patreon. Um, uh, like I said, Tom, if you guys like us, we've been on the show uh, a couple times, and we have plans to come back for things. Yes, uh, I may have indeed, gotten, indeed. I got Phil to agree to something on Mike that he's definitely going to try and go back on. Um, <laughs> I don't know about going. I'm whatever. Okay, fine. <laughs> not, Listen, yeah. if you're if you're hyped to do Jimmy Buffett's Beach House on the Moon, I'm hyped too. I'm excited for I'm, it. I'm, you know, and yeah. I may be back sooner than I expected. <laughs> for uh to tie into a movie that's coming out soon fuck yeah uh also past guests of theirs uh other you know past guests of ours i should say have also been on podcasts like 1999 you know friends of ours like david future guests future guests as well yes very excited about that uh folks find Mm -hmm. out about that soon so please check that out phil is there anything else you want to plug before we let you go 
No, I just, you know, I'll just say one last thing. You know, I'm, I'm currently doing a, I'm doing a, a miniseries on the West Wing. Uh, on Wednesdays, they drop. That'll be going for a little bit. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, Mike, you're coming, you're coming on for Futurama. And there's a future uh, TV miniseries that I'll be covering as well. But yeah, I mean, just uh, sign up uh, to, to, to our Patreon if you can. Is it finally Shasta McNasty Saturday? Never, ever, ever. <laughs> Never. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so thank you guys so much for checking out. And uh, for those of you listening, stick around. We will be right back with me and Tom's picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Maltin and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. So my pick, uh, I was thinking about All About Eve, and, and in the episode itself, we talk about movies that are similar to it uh, thematically. I started thinking in a different direction about you know what I want preserved in the registry. And uh, it's interesting because uh, All About Eve is, of course, produced by Daryl F. Zanuck. Uh, it was a, you know studio head and producer uh, racked up three best picture wins including all about eve uh and i started thinking about you know all these stories of stardom and how they rise and we talk in the episode about the stories we love we love those stories uh of somebody who just got lucky or got a good break or or how they navigated things we if it's told from their point of view we love that so i started thinking not about another fictional film but about a documentary that uh, kind of covers that real Hollywood history, that real, you know, just the right luck and just the right things happening at just the right time. Um, and funny enough, my pick actually connects to Daryl F. Zanuck. Uh, famously, uh, there was a young actor on the set of The Sun Also Rises, the 1957 film, uh, and some of the other people in the cast wanted that young actor fired. And studio head Daryl F. Zanuck famously said no, the kid stays in the picture. That actor would go on to become legendary Hollywood producer Robert Evans. Uh, and after Evans suffered a stroke, he decided to write his memoir, uh, which has the title, The Kid Stays in the Picture. Uh, the memoir was very popular. The audiobook became very popular because Evans has this very particular delivery, uh, famously uh, lampooned uh, in documentary now and missed a show of uh, you know talking about uh, did that happen? You bet your ass it did. Did I know what I was doing? Not a chance, baby. But did I have luck on my side? You bet. That kind of delivery. And they ended up adapting that into a documentary in 2002. Uh, and it's a fascinating documentary that kind of charts uh, the most tumultuous era in New Hollywood. I mean, Robert Evans was the producer on The Godfather, Chinatown, Rosemary's Baby, uh, and the one that he loves to talk about in that movie, that he was the one that saw the potential in Love Story, which ended up being the highest grossing film in 1970. Uh, it's a fascinating chronicle of all of the 
uh, all of the conniving and all of the coincidence that goes into the rise and fall of one of the biggest egos in Hollywood. We start with a, you know, a, a radio star who becomes a movie star uh, who starts leading Paramount, becomes an indie producer, and then gets busted for cocaine and is possibly connected to a murder. Uh, you know, it's an incredible story um, and just a remarkable, uh, remarkable uh, chronicle. So uh, I think if we're going to try and preserve film and film history, uh, there are a few things that capture that historic moment in Hollywood quite like The Kid Stays in the Picture. So I want The Kid Stays in the Picture in the National Film Registry. That's definitely a good choice for this one. Um, it's funny, we were talking uh, 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 obscurely, not really revealing what we were going to pick for each one as we tend to do. We were hinting and hinting. Uh, and it seems very clear we're not going to pick the one we both thought was the obvious choice for this movie. So neither one of us is picking the one that we both thought the other one was going to pick, is what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. So okay. I, when I was watching it before we <laughs> recorded today, it, it some, a movie struck me that I wouldn't have thought of, but it really made a lot of sense to me, mainly in <clears throat> the dynamic that, um, that Margot, Eve dynamic of the elder and the young one there's the sort of mentorship thing but then uh things get poisoned and all of that but this movie does it uh where the dynamics in a way are turned where the Margot character is the 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 evil destructive one and the eve character is the one that becomes in over their head and has to learn uh pretty quickly how to navigate this new world they found themselves in and uh, it just struck me, and I kind of just bored its way into my head. I got fucking incepted. Tom Barron just running around in my brain, just screaming about nonsense now. It features arguably the best performance this actor has ever given. It landed like a bomb when it came out, and it's stayed pretty consistently popular since its release. Arguably, the director and the writer have never hit such highs again. It hit me like it just struck me. I had to pick it. I'm su- kind of surprised it's not in. Kind of not. I get it. I think my pick has to be Training Day. And for all for all those reasons, the way it inverts uh, the all about Eve structure to tell this gritty story about uh, good and evil, the morality of policing, the way policing can wither away your soul, all, all this sorts of stuff. Denzel, I mean, he's. Just for the, the Denzel performance alone, I think the movie should be in. I think it's probably his best performance if we're not talking about if if not Malcolm X. I mean, it's it's one or two. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's one of the most magnetic things. Uh, Ethan Hawke doesn't get enough credit for the work he does in that movie. He's the straight man allowing Denzel's just absolute fucking just monstrous performance to work. Uh, it looks great. Fuqua's never made a better movie. It's uh, Ayer has never written a better movie. Uh, it moves like a freight train. Uh, it just it still works. It hits. It packs a fucking punch. And again, man, just for the way it, you wouldn't think of it when you when you're talking about movies that got influenced by All About Eve. But I I feel like this is low key one of the best uh, uses of that dynamic uh, and the way. It uh, takes it out of Hollywood to use it for another glimpse into an insular world, also in Los Angeles, even though all about Eve's in New York. Uh, just the way it 
does all of that stuff, I think training day, uh, for many reasons, should be in the uh, the registry. Thank you again to Phil Isco for joining us. Next week, we dust off our tap shoes and bring on the other half of Podcast Like It's 1999. That's right. Kenny Nybart returns to tackle 1935's Top Hat. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance. On the National Film Registry.